Addicted to her cars, good days to you, I'll tell Of how the good old union is coming here to dwell Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Hello, I'm Dennis Fernando, an Arise Festival volunteer, and I'd like to welcome you to this Sunday afternoon's session of the festival entitled The New Colonialism, Resisting Racism and Exploitation in the Global South, which I'll be chairing. Whether it's through debilitating debt repayments, asset stripping IMF structural adjustment plans, or the refusal to provide the finance necessary to mitigate for the effects of the climate crisis, colonialism and exploitation of the global south is still alive and well in our international institutions. And as it continues, we're witnessing a rise in racism in the global north. For example, in the UK, where our government is dismantling the refugee and asylum system, demonizing people who are often fleeing the consequences of European and US foreign and economic policy, all while stoking up the fascists and far right. Attempting to whitewash the crimes of racism and empire and deny history, conservative pundits and politicians denounce any proper reckoning with institutional racism or the US and, or the US and Europe's imperial past and present as woke. But there is a resistance in the international Black Lives Matter movement, in the attempts to decolonize curriculums, and marches on the streets calling to defend migrant and asylum rights. The movement against colonialism and racism is growing and growing. To add to these discussions and more, today we're joined by Asad Rahman, the Director of War and Want, Lubaba Khalid, the National BAME Officer of Young Labour, and Heidi Chow, Director of the Debt Justice Campaign. Let's get the discussion rolling with our first speaker, Asad Rahman. Thank you, Dennis. And, uh, uh... As you quite rightly say, I think too often the dominant discourse around these realities of these multiple crises that we are facing and overwhelmingly be faced by the global south uh, and now actually also increasingly working class communities in the global north is either intended to soothe us, distract us or propose uh, a similar model of exploitation and extraction that created the crisis in the first place and somehow that these will resolve these crises. And as internationalists, we have a duty and a responsibility not only to tell the truth, but to join the dots between these systemic exploitations of the poorest in the world and ensure that our demands and our solutions deliver justice so that everyone has the right to be able to live with dignity and of course, in harmony with the planet. So um, that requires us to, look, re, re, to know what we are leaving behind, as well as what is the future we want to, to, to look like. Um, we know we're at a critical moment in our in human history. Never before have the very ecosystems that we rely on unraveled at the scale uh, that we are witnessing. And it's not just the climate crisis uh, uh, with its killer floods and fires and famines, we, that are devastating the lives and livelihoods of millions of people in the global south. We know that the alarm bells have been rung, that we're about to breach the, for the first time in human history, the 1.5 degree guardrail within the next five years, which will dwarf the violence that we're already seeing being unleashed on the poorest in the world, or the global crisis of inequality that has already condemned three and a half billion people in the world to live on less than the equivalent of $5.50. Now that we have like something close to about 88% of the world uh, living in poverty, including 
4.3 million children here in the UK with countless millions more um, unable to heat their homes or feed their families, similar to the 3 billion people around the world who don't have access to clean energy or cooking. Um, we've got 2 billion people going hungry, 1.6 billion people without adequate housing and a billion people without access to fresh water. And this crisis of inequality that has been supercharged by, of course, a global cost of greed crisis where hundreds of millions of people are being pushed into extreme poverty. All the while, corporate giants are racking up billions in profits. And in the last year alone, for every $1 of wealth that has been earned by 99% of the world's population, the millionaire class seized 2.3 million and the billionaire class $2 billion a day, a day. Uh, never have they had it so good. Um, or the hunger pandemic that the UN now warns is, is playing out all around the world. Again, not because we can't feed the world. In fact, we can feed the world three times over. It's again because of a handful of corporations control our food systems that are more intent on, uh, intent on selling land, water to feed the richest and not feed the majority of people. And it's incredible that today, something like between 75% and 80% of the world are fed on just less than 25% of all arable land. The remainder is, of course, for the production of commodities to feed a global economic system that is for the few and not for the many. My colleague Heidi, of course, is going to speak a lot about the crisis of debt that is pushing more and more countries into unsustainable and illegitimate debt repayments that mean that they can't, that their own citizens lack the very basics to be able to live with. And we could, of course, talk about this, the global tax system, you know, which is uh, uh, where the working class people pay more in taxes than the than uh, than the rich, where corporations have been given the power to either dodge taxes and avoid paying their taxes, their share of taxes, especially in the global south, where they extract and exploit people and their resources, or of the trade system, which has been designed to lock in countries of the global south to be pretend to be dependent on the extraction of their resources, whilst of course the richest economies benefit. And incredibly, since 1960, uh, 152 trillion dollars worth of wealth has been extracted from the global south uh, by the global north. And let's not forget, of course, the hundreds of years, as you rightly pointed out, of slavery, colonialism and imperialism, which looted the south to enrich the north. As Walter Rodney said, it's not that Europe develops Africa, it is Africa that has developed Europe. And in face of these crises, we know change is now coming. In fact, it is inevitable. It will be a profound change of our economies and societies. The only question that really remains is what kind of change and who will pay the price? Uh, will it be more of the same? Will it be the same logic of racialized capitalism, of profit accumulation on one hand, and the deliberate sacrificing of peoples of the global south, black, brown, and indigenous? Will it be the walls and fences of the far right or, or in, the, in the words of the UN Special Rapporteur of Extreme Poverty said, we have created climate apartheid where the rich will use their, seek to use their wealth to seek safety and leave the poor to burn or drown. Or will the transition be a new wave of green colonialism, of extraction of minerals and metals and resources from the global south? Um, this time to power green capitalism in the north while reproducing the same injustices of the fossil fuel economy. And it's not just in the far right. As we recently heard from the EU's own foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, when he candidly said, Europe is a garden. Outside of the garden is the jungle. 
and the jungle is trying to get into the garden. It's why we have to be gardeners of the jungle. Um, and, and, but it doesn't, of course, have to be this case. In every corner of the world, you know, movements of people are building alternative. They're reaching back and connecting to the legacies of the anti-colonial and anti-imperialist leaders, many who we know were murdered and overthrown by the West, whether it was Lumumba, Sankara, Allende, Albenz, to Mossadegh, who called for their economies to serve their people and not the interests of corporations and elites in the global north. And they're also reaching forward and asking, what does a post-extractive futures look like? How do we ensure that energy, food and water are, are commons that are in the public control, shared equitably, and to meet the needs of people and not for profit? How do we ensure that living wages, social protection, and public services are a right for all, not just those in the global north, but also in the global south? And how do we do that by also whilst protecting our, our ecosystems and reject the colonial mindsets that say nature exists without people and people exist without nature? Look, this is, of course, a moment, but it's not a moment of doom. Gramsci very famously said, the old world is dying, the new world struggles to be born, and now is the time of monsters. And of course it looks like, and it feels like the monsters are everywhere. The monsters are sitting in the corporate uh, boardrooms, they're sitting in government uh, institutions, and of course increasingly those monsters also trying to take the streets with the far-right populism. But it's also a moment of immense hope, right? Because these crises have showed us and not just people in the global south, but now increasingly for people in the global north, that that this system is not is not working. So within it, there are opportunities for to demonstrate there are solutions based on this international solidarity of anti-racism, of anti-colonialism, and of cooperation. Not only resolve these crises, but create the fair, just, and green world we all want to. That's why it was war on want together with our allies and partners, both here in the UK and globally, we come together around a radical idea of a global Green New Deal, an anti-colonial and anti-imperialist global Green New Deal, a vision for the future. But nothing is possible without building power, the power of people and the power of our movements. And again, this is a moment of immense hope because this moment means that we can build movements that are connected and act shoulder to shoulder with each other, that stand shoulder to shoulder, fighting the same fight now in the global north as in the global south, so that everybody has a right to be able to live with dignity. Thank you so much, Asad. Um, and um, we are now going to move to our next speaker, um, who is Lubaba Khalid, the BAME office, National BAME Officer for Young Labour. Thank you very much, Lubaba. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you for having this very important conversation and inviting me to be part of it. So like racism and an insidious and deeply rooted problem continues to plague our communities, institutions and even our minds. It manifests itself in various forms from overt acts of discrimination to subtle biases ingrained within our societal structures. But make, make, but make no mistake. Racism corrodes the very foundation of justice and undermines the values we hold dear. Resisting racism requires a collective effort, a united front that acknowledges the inherent dignity and worth of every human being, regardless of their race or ethnicity. It demands we confront our prejudices, challenge discriminatory practices, and work tirelessly to dismantle the systematic barriers perpetrating inequality. 
We must be unwavering to our commitment to justice, for it is only through our collective voices and actions we can bring about lasting change. Education is key to changing and shaping the future of our country. The curriculum we are taught shapes our understanding of our country and the world around us and informs the way we interact with it. One powerful tool in this fight against racism is decolonizing the curriculum. Our education system plays a pivotal role in shaping minds, influencing attitudes, and perpetrating or dismantling oppressive ideologies. It is therefore imperative that we critically examine the content and structure of our curricula, ensuring that they're inclusive, accurate, and representative of the diverse experiences and contributions of all people. Decolonizing the curriculum entails challenging the Eurocentric perspectives that have dominated our educational institutions for far too long. It requires acknowledging and centering the histories, cultures, and knowledge systems of marginalized communities that have been historically silenced or erased. By doing so, we empower students to question dominant narratives, develop a more nuanced understanding of the world, and, cult and cultivate empathy and respect for all cultures. But decolonizing the curriculum is not about replacing one set of biases with another. It's about creating a space for multiple voices, perspectives, and narratives to coexist. It is about fostering critical thinking, encouraging students to ask difficult questions, and promoting dialogue and understanding across cultural divides. By doing this, we equipped future generations with the tools they need to challenge racism and build a more inclusive society. Resisting racism and decolonizing the curriculum is not one time endeavor, but an ongoing process that requires constant vigilance and engagement. It demands that we listen to the voices of those who have been marginalized, learn from their experiences and collaborate with them as allies in the fight for justice. It it necessitates that we continually examine and challenge our own biases, both conscious and unconscious, and commit ourselves to unlearning harmful behaviors. We have the power to resist racism and decolonize the curriculum. The Labour Party, um, the, the Labour Party looks like they are the future of our, of our governments. Uh, the Labour Party looks like they're going to be the future government of our society, and they must reflect on what society we want to build on. Labour cannot afford to only call out government's harmful and racist asylum policy, but they must also reserve, reverse the policies. They should reverse the bills that seek, lim that seek limits to protest and reaffirm the commitment to an education system where students can debate and discuss freely by removing prevents. They must be brave enough to teach our history the good, the bad, and the ugly. As the Labour Party developed their policies for education, it is imperative that we omit our past. And the first step is creating a curriculum that teaches our future generation a truly diverse curriculum. Thank you very much, Libaba. Uh, that was really great. Um, we are now going to move on to our next speaker, who is Heidi Chow, Director of the Debt Justice Campaign. Thank you very much, Heidi. Oh, sorry, Heidi, you're on mute. 
Sorry about that. Um, thank you, Dennis. Yeah, thank you for that introduction. And thank you to the RISE Festival as well for having me join this discussion. Um, I think this discussion is really important because understanding how colonialism has worked in the past and how it works today are really key to building solidarity and resistance against global systems of oppression. So my organization works on debt and um, debt has been used as a powerful weapon to exert control and dominance over the global south. Uh, right now, 54 countries in the global south are in a debt crisis. And this means that at a time when countries are facing multiple crises, governments are having to prioritize debt repayments over delivering essential public services and fighting the climate emergency. But debt is often seen either as a technical financial issue that people don't really understand, or it's seen as the fault of corrupt or incompetent governments. And both these narratives are not just hugely inaccurate, but also dangerously harmful and distracts from the role that debt has played to drive colonialism and neo-colonialism. So I'm just gonna give you a really quick overview of how this has happened. So for many countries, after they became, even after they became independent, they were saddled with harmful levels of debt. And this debt was often forced upon them through military action. So for example, Haiti was um, under the threat of military invasion and economic blockade and agreed to pay 150 million gold francs to France to compensate for the loss of um, income from slavery. And also, in and also for France's recognition of Haiti's independence. Um, the other countries, such as Democratic Republic of Congo and Zimbabwe, they were forced to inherit the debts of their former colonial rulers. Um, and so essentially paying back money that had been used to oppress and harm their people under colonial rule. Um, and so colonial states, that, uh, former colonial states that became independent were saddled with debt, but also lacking the resources to develop and so had very little choice but to continue uh, exporting raw materials. So colonial economies had essentially been set up to supply commodities like metals and cash crops to feed the industrial growth taking place across Europe. Um, and a recent UN report said that 101 countries are still locked into this colonial model even to this day. And the problem with being over-reliant on exports um, of raw materials is that it leaves countries vulnerable to external shocks um, and also insecure income. So in other words, we see economic instability structurally built in for these economies that is a massive overhang from the, from the colonial period. And so the colonial project doesn't really end with independence. Instead, we just see it morph from uh, morph into a different form. So instead of having boots on the ground and physical coercion and subjugation that we see during the colonial era, we see instead this continued control and dominance as global South countries are forced to engage in a global economy that's completely rigged against their interests. So um, we, in this kind of context, countries have very, had very little choice but to borrow from former colonial powers just to keep their economies afloat. And so what we see is this transition from a colonizer-colonized relationship into a lender-borrower relationship with once again the former colonial powers keeping the upper hand in that. And so when it comes down to it, debt is all about power. And we see this really, uh, we see this power being wielded um, uh, in a really powerful way by the IMF and the World Bank, where they could continue to cement neo-colonial control through the 1980s and 1990s. Essentially, in the, 19, um, in the 1980s, the IMF and World Bank lent more money to uh, the global south to essentially bail out the risky lending that banks and hedge funds had, did, had done during the 1970s and push the global south across, uh, uh, push the debt crisis across the global south. Um, but these loans 
were used to push neocolonialism to new heights because these loans came with policy conditions that would essentially control and shape the economies of global South countries to serve corporate and imperial interests. So economies were essentially forced to implement policies of austerity and privatization um, just to raise cash to pay back debts. Um, and and this, in the, during this period, we see uh, um, debt repayments being put before basic needs such as education, healthcare, and social protection. Um, countries also had to liberalize their markets and deregulate and cut slashing regulations on labor and environment just to attract more investment, again, to help pay these debts to uh, global north creditors. And essentially, these policies stripped global south countries of their economic sovereignty, it destroyed their public services and kept global south countries underdeveloped while increasing the power of multinational corporations. Today, the Global South remains, uh, remains um, predisposed to harmful levels of debt because they are locked into this global economy where the rules are rigged against them. And all it takes is an external shock to plunge countries into an economic crisis. So that's the situation that we've been in in the last few years with the, um, the poly crisis of the pandemic followed, um, followed by the Ukraine war, which has sparked off food and fuel price hikes. Um, exacerbated by um, excessive speculation in the financial markets, and now with rising inflation and rising interest rates, um, these are all these have all combined to plunge countries into a debt crisis to the levels that we've not seen in 25 years. So, what can be done about all of this? Well, as a uh, our organisation exists to campaign to cancel the debt. Um, because for countries that are experiencing these mountains of unpayable debt, the only way out is debt cancellation. So we are running a campaign to try and get new legislation to force banks and hedge funds to take part in debt cancellation. Uh, but we also are um, hoping that this legislation will also be part of a future infrastructure um, where we need in, in globally an independent global process to enable debt cancellation to take place whenever it's required so that this would change that balance of power between um, lenders and borrowers, but also to prevent future debt crises from taking place. And of course, we also need to go beyond debt as an issue. We also need to see debt actually as a problem, as, as a, a problem of a crisis of the economic system itself. Um, it's a system that is fundamentally racist, colonial, and rigged in the interests of rich governments, wealthy elites, and corporation. Um, and as my friend Assad has said, we need to join the dots um, so that we can challenge the underlying global economic system as driving all of these issues to the surface that we're seeing and experiencing both in the global north and in the global south. And to do that, we need to mobilize at the intersection of our issues and come together and join across issues such as climate justice, racial justice, health, tax and trade, so that we can challenge this deeply unequal global economy together. Thank you. Thank you so much, Heidi. Um, we are going to move to questions shortly, but before we do, I am just going to introduce Sam Browse, who's going to say a few words about the Arise Festival. Hi all, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, just three things, three things that I want you to remember from this call. The Four things, in fact, let's call it four. The first is please buy a ticket 
we uh, rely on your donations. The people who run the festival are volunteers. Um, uh, we raise money through donations. And one of the best ways you can donate, do, donate to us is through buying a solidarity ticket. Um, all the events are free. Um, but if you really like them, you can buy a solidarity ticket um, via the link that's posted in uh, the live chat as you're watching this on the right of the screen. So that's the first thing. Second thing is we are more than halfway through the festival now, I think. Um, our next uh, our next meeting, which will be tomorrow, um, is No More Pinochets in Latin America. I really hope you can get to that. But please do also check out the link tree of all the events of the festival. You can actually also watch everything that's already come out as well through the link tree. Uh, that's how awesome the link tree is. So you can even engage in the festival after half of it has, um, has, been, uh, has been and gone. So there's, and there's a whole host of things to engage with there from sessions on Ireland to Palestine, to the economy, to the NHS, uh, to an, another session uh, with Jeremy Corbyn on global justice that is yet to come. Um, so there's a plethora of things that you can, you can get involved in. Um, so that's, that's the second thing, check out the link tree. The third thing is please, if you don't wanna buy a solidarity ticket or um, um, please donate what you can afford um, at the donate link that's also posted in the chat or on the right of the screen. And finally, I don't know if I mentioned this, but please buy a ticket. <laughs> we really, 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 really need your support in helping to make these things happen. We're hearing today about how global institutions are, um, or global capitalist institutions are, are like powerful because of the amount of resources they have available, how they leverage that power. Like globally, we have each other, we have our ability to organize. So please, like do what you can to help the festival donate and i really hope you enjoy yourself and i hope you enjoy the discussion as it continues today and thank you very much dennis for letting me do that shout out <laughs> no problem thank you very much sam um i'm now going to move to questions and i thought it would be useful to take them in threes well i'm going to break my rule and say four the first one so i was going to do a general question and then one that's kind of picking up from each of the speakers but obviously feel free to answer Cross answer is, is totally great. Um, so first question, when we talk about the historic colonial role of the richest economies, the Tories often talk about it as if it's a culture war and some people say the left shouldn't get involved. How do we counter that narrative? So that's one question. And then one just picking up from Libaba who talked about the collective effort to struggle against racism and colonialism. What kind of collective vehicles do we need to organize against that system? Um, Asad, who talked about um, the, the food crisis that we're facing globally, um, what do the panel think a globally just food system looks like? Um, and then just finally on this round, um, Heidi talked about the, um, the multi-crisis that we've faced and particularly what's happened as a result of the COVID crisis. Uh, how have the colonial and racist structures that you've outlined um, played out in the global handling of the pandemic? So feel free to come in on one or many of those questions. And should we go in reverse order, go to Heidi first? Yeah, sure, that's fine. Um, so uh, maybe I'll start backwards as well <laughs> on the Malta crisis and how the racist structures have dealt with the global handling of the pandemic. Um, actually, before I was working on debt, I actually during the pandemic years, I was actually working on vaccine access 
um, and in particular um, the the way that uh, the vaccines have all been produced by um, public funding um, and then privatised by the, the pharmaceutical industry. And actually what we saw during the pandemic um, and the handling of the pandemic was actually this the, the elevated role that corporations had, but not just the um, elevated role that corporations had, but through things like um, vaccine nationalism, where countries were racing to hoard vaccines for their own countries first, um, in complete disregard of um, black and brown communities across the global south. Um, they not only hoarded it for themselves, but they also shut the doors on production. So they had the ability to actually open up production for the whole world to produce enough doses um, to vaccinate the whole world. And yet they decided to, uh, to maintain intellectual property protections for corporations to enable them to continue to profiteer off the back of a global health pandemic. So that's the kinds of um, uh, so 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 when we so when we're, whether we're looking at um, the the you know the question of vaccine access during the pandemic, whether we're looking at the issue around um, uh, the climate emergency and the lack of inaction around that, whether we're looking at um, the debt crisis and again the 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 the, um, the 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 plethora of rhetoric about dealing with it, but no actual firm um, answers for it. That actually behind all each of these issues, the common thread that you see through all of this is the dominance of um, corporate power. Um, the interests of the wealthy, uh, of wealthy governments and elites, and all of this, uh, the collusion of the elites that we have in the global north is at the complete expense um, of ordinary people in the global south. Um, and so that's how that's why I think we need to recognize the underlying threads behind each of these individual issues to create that um, global movement to challenge the the, the, the the deeply unequal and unjust um, global economy that we have, which um, completely sacrifices the lives of people across the global south. Um, just want to touch on the food system because actually prior to working on the pandemic, I was also uh, worked on food and agriculture for many years. And actually, I just wanted to give a shout out for the food sovereignty movement here because um, the food sovereignty movement is a movement that emanated from the global south. It's a whole um, framework and political understanding of how we see food. So rather than seeing food as a commodity through which we make money off, actually seeing food as a human right. And seeing few, uh, uh, and seeing the right to right to culturally appropriate, um, locally produced food as a right for every single person on earth, and to value the role of small scale farmers in our global economy. Because right now, again, within just uh, just as I mentioned in kind of climate and health and debt spaces, we see corporate power um, uh, looming over the global food system um, and increasingly growing uh, corporate power in that space. And so we really need to reclaim these areas of what, what are basic the basic essential of life, um, uh, areas of the commons, in order to uh, push forward a vision, a very positive vision of how people can take back control over these crucial areas of life. Um, I feel like I've hogged the airtime for quite a bit, so I'll, I'll hand over maybe to some of the other panellists to, to make some contributions on the other questions. Thanks so much, Heidi. We will have a second round, so if there are points you want to come back in on, we can uh, we can come back to them on the second round. Um, we'll go next to Libaba. Um, yeah, so in terms of like collective vehicles um, against, uh, like to collectively like um, campaign against racism, obviously, like within my role, um, I'm, I, I do special, I like, I'm more, my expertise is within universities and, and student spaces and, and school spaces. And I think one thing I would strongly recommend, you know, anybody that wants to introduce something like Equalize in the curriculum um, and a campaign on that within the university is trying to get as many voices together as possible. Um, I know 
in your universities, you, you've got access to so many different societies, um, but it's important to making sure that all societies come together, all communities come together. So like, for example, I, I, did, I would strongly advocate, for example, having like the decol society, because some universities have decolonized society, to work with societies such as the Somali society, the Pakistani society, these cultural societies to really come together um, and campaign for these things because the more the the more voices there are, the better, the stronger you are as a as a collective, really. Um, and I think another thing I would say is the willingness to challenge the university head on. Um, so going after mainly their finances, I'll be honest, that's the best way to go off. And and we see that these are successful. Um, you know, things like we saw in Manchester with the rent strikes um, and things like that. It does. It's like very effective way to get um, the university to listen. Another example is like the Goldsmith occupation that was happened a couple of years ago. You know, the way that they used occupying a building to get funding to create spaces for black and brown voices um, and students. You know, these things. Um, I, I would say. Let's not be afraid to occupy the building. That's what I was gonna say, <laughs> uh, basically. Um, and um, and I think yeah, it's about creating spaces as well for the most marginalized within our society, within our university and school spaces um, as well, um, which all comes in parcel with, you know, all the other um, all the other forms of activism that happens. But I also say like joining organizations like Arise. Um, you know, being in these kind of environments, networking, um, speaking to like individuals like Assad, who so, has so much experience, you know, from the time that he was, because I still remember listening to Assad when I was in university um, at an NUS conference and how, you know, the, the listening to his work and how he's campaigned, you know, back in the day, these things really motivate us as students um, and as young people. And I would run courage, uh, you know, the current students and young people to do the same, learn from our elders, um, our, our, like, oh, I don't know if it's elders, sorry, I said I didn't mean it that way, but you know what I mean, like, the people with the much more experience than us. So, yeah, so that is um, the different uh, things that I would, uh, I would suggest and, um, yeah. I hope that answered the question. Thanks so much, Lubaba. Um, and also thank you for calling out the Goldsmiths uh, occupation. I thought that was a really brilliant action, uh, which showed very specific um, solidarity around racism and around putting black voices to the fore and resulted in things like scholarships for students from Palestine. Um, and I only call it out because I, I actually went down and, and gave a couple of talks and G'd them up and was trying to be as encouraging as I can. So I think that kind of that that link up that you're talking about people who are activists and like helping out with um, activists who are coming through and doing these actions is really important, uh, which I know Assad knows a lot about too. So over next to Assad. Uh, uh, thank you, and uh, <laughs> thank you. For, uh, I, 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 I'm glad you, 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 my, my talks didn't put you off from, from activism. Um, so maybe I'll go also in reverse order as well, and just uh, to build on what what Heidi was saying, you know, in terms of the pandemic, if we wanted uh, any uh, uh, reminder of how these systems respond to a crisis, the pandemic is the best example that we have, right? Uh, we remember um, the leaders of the G7 countries, including the UK Prime Minister, here and during the pandemic, uh, standing there and saying, no one is safe until we're, everyone is safe. And the very nature of the pandemic, meaning that it required a global effort 
to eradicate this virus, which was, of course, uh, already threatening the lives and livelihoods of millions of people. And what did we see? As Heidi quite rightly said, we saw, first of all, rich countries compete with poorest countries for PPE equipment. They amassed four times the amount of PPE equipment than they needed, left the Global South without any protection. When the Global South said, we really urgently need more support to protect and, 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 and have resilient public health systems, the very health systems that you're pouring millions and billions into in the Global North, uh, the Global North said, I'm sorry, we're too busy. The only thing that you can do is, is, is have more debt-creating loans. That's your what your answer. And of course, as uh, we saw that in terms of with then with the vaccine apartheid. I mean, the, the you know, the tools of neoliberalism that were imposed on the Global South were then largely ignored in the Global North, right? Because they had the ability to intervene in their economies. And of course, um, overwhelmingly, they did so for the benefit of corporate giants, as we can see now from the COVID loans and the whole uh, uh, who got richer, right? And, and, you know, we work directly with workers all around the world. And we saw that even with our brands, right? With the, with the high street brands, brands in terms of the garment sector, um, uh, production workers who had even produced the goods that the Global North had demanded were then told, we're not going to pay you. Workers were left destitute, locked out of, of their factories without any public services, without any social protection, and were just left to go hungry. Social movements had to repurpose themselves to provide for the very communities that they supported because their state was unable, uh, and oft, sometimes unwilling, but largely unable to be able to meet the needs. These very systems that, of course, the Global North uh, relied on. And if we wanted an illustration of the inequities built into that system. You know, it's calculated that workers around the world lost about $3.4 trillion in, in wages during the pandemic. You know the people who didn't lose any money? The billionaire class. In fact, the richest 10 people doubled their wealth during the pandemic. They were earning something like $15,000 a second during the pandemic. So it also shows that in crisis, it's not that we all shoulder the burden equally. And we know, that the COVID pandemic also exposed the inequities and injustices and inequalities within our own society. Overwhelmingly black, brown, poorer communities were at the forefront. They were the frontline workers. They were the ones who were most uh, exposed to the virus and had some of the highest mortality rates. We know that now there were millions of excess deaths in the global south because of that vaccine apartheid because global north government said we're going to protect the interests of big pharmaceutical companies and not eradicate the virus and that gives us a, a sense of how they respond to each crisis and how they're responding to the climate crisis the pandemic the covid pandemic and of course to the to the food crisis as well look you know war on want we've been working like over 70 years with frontline movements and you know we just published a, a new report just a few weeks ago um on who profits from hunger right and we can see that it, the food system that has been created and we can go it goes back again to the point that heidi was talking about right we look at neoliberalism in the 1970s, you know, in terms of the forced privatization and liberalization of economies. Uh, that happened in all parts 
but increasingly also in food production and food system. So much so now that a handful of corporate giants control the majority of grain production in the world and trade in that. And again, you know, this pandemic that we're facing in terms of around hunger is not because there's not enough food. Absolutely, there is enough food. It's because there is profiteering in terms of food. And so back, you know, after the end of the Second World War, when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was written, you know, food was written as a right, and yet now it's become a, a luxury. It's become available only to those who can afford. So absolutely, we have solutions. We have solutions that also not only tackle hunger, but also tackle the climate crisis that can cool the planet, can feed people, can move us away from the reliance on toxic pesticides and industrial agrochemical fertilizers. Our movements uh, are developing those, the food sovereignty movement, the agroecology movement, the, I've, I've got those. At, core, at the core is a fundamental issue about land. Who controls land? Is it, do people, and overwhelmingly frontline communities and peasants have owned that land, or is that land owned by corporate giants and the elites? And increasingly we see land being controlled and owned by these corporate giants. So they make decisions. So yes, there is hunger, but this very same countries where which have a, a, a face hunger are at the same time exporting commodities back to the global north when they should be repurposing and ensuring that the land and the water that uh, resources are geared towards feeding their people. So we need shorter food systems. We can see now how easy it is to disrupt food systems globally in a moment of crisis. And this, I think, goes back also to this question in terms of what you were talking about, about, uh, uh, Dennis, when you talk about how, you know, the, uh, talking about uh, our history is seen as woke, right? Um, because people want to don't, what, what, you know, one thing that neoliberalism uh, did very very effectively you know it 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 wasn't what it just did economically and 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 to our institutions it's what it did to all of us right it told us it basically tried to raise our imagination our imagination to imagine anything that came before the market uh, or, or will come after the market and the same thing is now happening when people talk about walk right what they want to do is eradicate the history Right, of what that reality was of the how uh, the global north exploited and extracted wealth and resources. Right, so they want to eradicate the history of how Britain's wasn't that it was more ingenious during the industrial revolution. It was the fact that it was the slave profits from slave owners and from the plantations that powered the industrial revolution. It wasn't that Britain could control a third of the world because somehow Britain was more mightier than everywhere else. Of course, it was more brutal. It had a brutal engine of, of colonial conquest, but it was also the extraction of wealth. $45 trillion from the Indian subcontinent alone during the British Raj. Brit India's uh, GDP fell from 24% to less than 4% by the time the British had left. It deliberately impoverished the global south and those colonized countries to enrich itself, to enable itself to now be the fifth biggest economy in the world, the fifth biggest historical polluter and the sixth biggest consumer of resources. Now, our answer to that isn't simply about trying to fight that. I think it's also about telling a very, very different story. So the story I think we should be telling is a story that during the uh, American Civil War, uh, when the North had a blockade on the, on the slave-owning colonies in the South, you know, the merchants, the rich and the elite in, of Liverpool and Manchester came together 
and, and, and built a warship to break the blockade so that cotton could flow from the slave colonies to, the, to Lancashire and Yorkshire. But the response of workers, uh, of textile workers, of working class people, was to say we refuse to handle the cotton that comes from slave ownership. We have more in common as people with the slave owners than with the merchants and the elites. We should tell the story that of, of, of Tate and Lyle in, in East London and where the sugar boycott happened of people resisting slavery it wasn't just the middle classes, it was working class people. The largest number of people who, who took part in the sugar boycott were ordinary working class people. And that's because there is an important experience and a word of solidarity. And that has been key to our communities here and it's key to our communities globally. And that is what they want to erase, the idea of solidarity. And that is what WARP tries to attack. It tries to attack solidarity between communities and within our communities. And that's why it's going after, whether it's around race, trans, all of these issues. It's seeking to divide us. It's seeking to say, you know, don't worry about anybody else, only worry about yourself and put a wall around you and your tribe. And we have to break that. And that is what this culture war, it's not about culture. It's actually about the story of the world and whose story were we going to tell? The story of the rich and powerful, of kings and queens, or the story of ordinary people who, by the power of organizing, have brought the NHS, um, who through the power of organizing made join uh, the right to join a trade union, the right to for women to vote. Uh, it was our power as ordinary people that repealed Section 28 and attacks on, 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 on gay rights. You know, all of these have come because ordinary people refused to accept the politics of injustice. And that's the story they want to erase and say that somehow the world happens and changes because it's some people in political circles or the rich and elite that have shaped this world. No. The story of the world is also about resistance and struggle and visions of the future. And that's been a story of humanity from the day the first slave revolts happened in, the, in Egypt right through to now. Ordinary people saying, we want something better. And that's what story we, can, we have to show, but we also have to show that we are able to attain it. And we have throughout history, and now we're faced at a, a, a pivotal moment where we need to do on, move on. I'm so sorry. Thank you very much. Sorry about that. Sorry. No problem. Um, we're, we're, we've got another round of questions. Um, so uh, we will, I'll ask the questions and then if people want to give answers, you might not be able to cover all three questions um, because we're kind of coming towards the end of the event, but like do, do, uh, do come in with your thoughts. So um, uh, the first is, these are international issues and it feels like we only tackle them with a global movement. How do we link up with other organizations internationally? Um, and the next is, how is debt used to discipline the Global South countries when they don't do what the richest Global North countries would like? And then finally, um, just looking at what we can do here, um, what is the most important thing we can do in the UK to fight against racism and the exploitation of the Global South? Um, and I'm just gonna mix the order up uh, so I was going to come to Libaba first, if that's okay. Libaba, if you're if you're ready, or otherwise, I can go to someone else. I was I was just um, thinking of an answer. <laughs> oh, do you want me to? Do you want me to move? Yeah, if that's okay. Sorry. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. So if we if we Thank go you. to Hadi first, and then we'll come to Libaba, and then Asad. 
Uh, yeah, so in terms of tackling these issues, uh, these are international issues, what can we do in this country? Um, I hope you don't mind me giving a bit of a shameless plug for my own organisation in that um, on the issue of debt, um, one of the, well, actually one of the kind of um, uh, hangovers of colonialism is that uh, almost all debt contracts in the world are written either in New York law or English law um, because uh, the, the because English law was forced to, um, on contract law or in all the colonies that, it, that um, the, the UK had um, and 90% um, and of um, the poorest countries in the world um, use um, English law to write their debt contracts in. And so this means that actually it gives the UK quite a unique position in terms of you know, the global movement to fight for debt justice, because it means that if we can actually introduce a new law in the UK parliament, actually that would apply to 90% um, like of the contracts in the world that are um, debt contracts in the world that are um, uh, that are that, that, that are governed, that governs the debt, 90% con of the debt contracts in the world of lower income countries. And so, um, and so that's the campaign that we're fighting for right now. And we're doing that in solidarity with the global debt movement. So that's just something very solid um, and concrete that we can do as people living in the UK to actually support a global debt movement. So um, I'll put up a, um, I'll, I'll send a link to Arise and see whether you can put that on the on the channel later on. Um, and um, in terms of um, uh using debt how uh, how's debt use discipline global south countries um we see it often in the way that uh the the power of the finance financial industry the financial sector so um uh, almost half of all global south debt is owed to banks and hedge funds um and um often what happens is when country and and often they lend to global south countries at really high interest rates um so for example in the global south they, they, they're being charged interest rates in the region of sort of you know six to ten percent versus zero to almost one percent in the global north and so so they are being uh, lent money at a very high interest rate which makes them very risky loans um and so when things go wrong and countries really can't pay up because they're just being charged these extortionate interest rates um often what happens is what needs to happen is that these loans need to be cancelled uh, these debts need to be cancelled um but instead what normally happens is the imf and world bank come along and say um actually we'll lend you more money and so in that instance what happens is the new loan that you take out from the imf world bank is then used to pay off the banks and hedge funds so the banks and hedge funds um have not only reaped in the high interest rates which were supposed to cover their risk um, but they've also um, been bailed out when things go wrong. So they really can't, so the global system means that the banks and hedge funds can't lose. Um, they get to both have high interest rates and they get to get bailed out by IMF and World Bank um, when things go wrong. Um, and so that's why it's really important that we need to tackle this whole kind of corrupt system um, at its very roots um, and actually prevent banks and hedge funds from being able to do um, these, the, to undertake these kinds of risky behaviours and then get away with it. Um, and so that's why sort of linking back to the legislation that I mentioned at the beginning, the legislation would prevent that from happening, would basically force uh, banks and hedge funds to take the hit for when things go wrong, because only when they're forced to do that, would that would prevent future risky lending in the future. Um, and so that's why um, uh, that's why we need to see kind of, the, yeah, that's why we need to see this, this sort of action being taken now and how we can actually make a difference um, be, being, being people who live in the UK and actually can have some kind of um, um, influence um, on our elected politicians. Thank you very much, Heidi. Um, we'll now move to Lubaba. 
Yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so I wanted to, uh, I'll, I'll address the conversation about um, linking up with international movements. Um, there are, in terms of the youth movement, there are pretty much, if you see any forms of resistance across the world, it's, it tends to be led by the youth. And we saw it here in the UK when it came to apartheid Africa, uh, South Africa. And it's the same uh, when we talk about Cuba, Palestine, and all sorts. And, and uh, one thing I do have to do is I have to give um, the international officer, Mohammed on, on Young Labour, his, his flowers, because he does um, work a lot with um, other youth movements across from Cuba to um, New Zealand and Australia. And he's always like sitting on different panels. Um, but one thing I do want to, to say is that when working with international, um, working with organizations and youth movements internationally, I think one vital thing that we need to make sure that we're not doing is telling them how to organize and telling them how to do their form of resistance. And I think that's something that I, I do find is start is starting to become quite prominent. I'm not sure, like, especially when it comes to Palestine, I think Palestine maybe is like the perfect example here. Um, while you know the way the Palestinians they resist um, the colonial panel, power, which is obviously Israel. Um, I find that when we want to, uh, we want to show our ally, like be allies to the Palestinian people, it comes with terms and conditions, and you know, think you know, and I think we have to take into these different things into account when it comes to working with um, international uh, forms of resistance and and uh, especially against racism and colonial powers. So. Um, that's yeah. So that was uh, yeah. That's my little. Hope that answered the question. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, uh, great answer. And uh, now we'll go over to Assad. Yeah. Thank you for for those questions. Um, I suppose as Warren wants as a as an organisation, you know, sort of founded in the labour movement, we've always been the internationalist movement, both working building power here in the UK and working directly with frontline communities and, and movements in the global south and and seeing and joining the docs that's why we work on workers rights here and globally we work on food sovereignty we work around uh, climate and energy extraction we fo focus on the root drivers of like trade and finance uh, uh, here and how do we build power increasingly also about the question, as you said, about solidarity um, with repressed people. We have a history of working both on South Africa originally, on Palestine and Western Sahara. And there is a lot we can do. It's why we can campaign here in this country around the arms sales to Israel. And, and uh, we can uh, we target banks like Barclays, which are profiting from repression. We can tar target our government about the trade policies, which locking these injustices around the world. We we are the city of London, you know, is uh, is here. This is uh, some of the most powerful financial institutions and corporations, which are responsible for many of these injustices. It's our government that rolls out much of this sort of neoliberal policy. So there's a lot that we can do about connecting our struggles, both here and globally. These are global problems and they require global solutions, but they require us to intervene at a national level and change the role of our governments. And that's the largest call and the biggest call that movements in the global south make upon us, which is it's your government, it's your corporations, you must act together with us, but you're there and you must target them. And as so I suppose my, my closing message about what we can do is look, education, political education is really critical, which is why I thank Arise Festival for the for these different panels and sessions because that's really important. 
but nothing changes without us building power and building power means organizing and mobilizing that means join organizations join mobile it's our collective power that makes a difference and and that is the only hope that we're going to have that we cannot win this by ourselves we have to build a movement of movements Thank you very much. Um, just before we uh, wrap up for this session, I'm going to just um, thank everyone who has listened uh, into this afternoon's discussion and thank you to our speakers for taking part. The festival is in full swing and there are still plenty of sessions to get involved in. So please do check them out using the link posted in the YouTube live chat and purchase a ticket if you can. Again, if you can, uh, again, you can find the link uh, in the chat and join us too for our session tomorrow entitled No More Pinochets in Latin America, Stand with Social Progress and Democracy. And now I'm just going to go in order of speakers for just a final word from each of our speakers just to wrap up the session. So we'll go in in the order that everyone spoke in, Assad, Lubaba and then Heidi. I think I've said everything that I need to say, so I'll give my time over to, to the others. Um, I do feel like I've said the same, but I hope that this like panel is uh, has like brought some kind of hope for attendees as well um, when it comes to like tackling uh, racism and because it can be quite overpower overwhelming um, as a topic. So I do hope um, listening to us and and hearing um, the expertise, especially from Asad and, and Heidi, because <laughs> they are a lot more um, that this was very beneficial. So yeah. Oh, sorry, Heidi, you're on mute. That again, sorry, yeah. Um, no, thank you so much for organising this event. I think I, I echo Lababa's um, words and as in that I think political education is so important and this event has been really important because I think, um, uh, yeah, it's really important in our fight against colonialism that we do expose the fact that colonialism isn't just something that's confined to the history books, um, but is actually alive and well and is working and operating um, and driving the multiple intersecting crises that we're facing right now in the global south and in the global north, whether that's in climate, health, debt, food, um, you know, whatever, the, all the issues that we've raised um, um, in this session. And yeah, just to finish off and saying, I think, you know, we do have the answers um, and we have a positive vision of a better world and together um, through organizing and building our power that we can join together and continue to build the resistance and solidarity we need to achieve it.